it's Ariella, your hostess. Welcome back to a podcast of Curious Minds. The Chit-Chatting and Questioning the World podcast discusses all wonders of the world. This episode will cover the magic of the ocean, the unique creatures that live within our waters. What are water mites? hydrozoan jellyfish, sea worms, zebra coke pods. We'll also discuss a fascinating story regarding our guest's research of an organism, and not just any organism, one made up of snakes. Oh, and by the way, it's made up of other organisms too. It's wacky to say the least. Igor Adamyepo is a um, professor of neurobiology. He runs two laboratories under one department studying embryonic uh, development of the neural system. He has a hobby studying marine biology. Hi, Ariella. Thanks a lot for inviting me for this podcast. I think it's a great idea and we can chat about marine biology, science in general, anything you would like to talk about. With his main job being a developmental neurobiologist, Igor is interested in organisms other than humans, all with different bodies and cell types that we don't have. We're far from understanding how their bodies work. Most organisms live in the sea and have life cycles extremely unique from humans. Igor is fascinated with marine biology, and his fascination compensates for the loss of diversity in his main work as a developmental neurobiologist. We can't just use the human model system to understand all of neurobiology. So, Igor travels the world with two microscopes as a part of his hobby. He uses microscopes to look at sea creatures up close and, of course, makes sure to go back to the sea to release them. He collects these uh, creatures at night, making it a tedious job. Igor, can you tell us more about your hobby and the amazing process of looking at sea creatures up close? Yes, sure. I think it's a fascinating hobby because it brings so much of diversity into my life, also including many travels to interesting places. Because every sea is different. Temperate seas, they're different from tropical seas. And Pacific Ocean is different from Indian Ocean and Atlantic Ocean. So you always find something new. I do this hobby for something like seven years already. And every time I travel somewhere, even if it's a repetitive location, I see something novel. So you cannot exhaust the sea. The sea can exhaust you, I guess. <laughs> and indeed, I travel with two microscopes because they give me different magnification power and I can film marine creatures in different ways. Yeah, I mean, they are all beautiful and extraordinary complex. And in my main job, I study the nervous system of humans and mice. We generate lots of transgenic animals and we do very uh, in-depth cell and molecular biology, really focusing on, on mouse and human system. So in that case, we don't move around too much and we don't see the diversity of other nervous system designs created by evolution. And uh, by looking at the marine organisms, I'm getting myself more exposed to the alternative body plans, builds up life cycles. It gives me some sort of feeling of being more connected with nature out there. I think it's a really interesting hobby. And I actually have a specific question. So I know you said you do this at night. So why would you do this at night? If, I mean, theoretically, it seems like it would be harder to go out there and find these animals at night. Yeah, great question. So I can do it during the day as well. But during the night, collecting plankton is somewhat easier because I use the underwater light sources. So I position them and I wait until the plankton comes towards them. So it's easier for me to see what is coming and collect it in a more targeted way. And also zooplankton, for example, makes these migrations during the day and night. So it's a sort of cycle of migration. During the day, 
they try to avoid the predators, they would like to go down in the dark horizons of water. So when I sample from like first 20, 30 meters, it's not easy for me to collect everything that I want. So I prefer to wait for the middle of the night when they all come up. And then I can put up the artificial light and then they all come to that light and I can collect them. I can put them under my microscope and spend the rest of the night filming them. And in the morning, I release them. That's typically how it happens. So that must disrupt your sleep cycle then, doing that so often. I don't do it so often, actually. I travel once in a while. So typically I have one travel like that in like two, three months. So it's okay. okay. And it is a lot of fun still. (laughs) So actually... (laughs) I think it's fixing my sleep because with my main job is teaching the students, writing manuscripts, doing experiments. I'm getting nervous and sometimes even depressed because science is very challenging and many experiments, they do not work. So I need some kind of some way of, you know, changing everything and wrapping myself in something that makes me happy. Yeah. And this is the most interesting hobby I mean, I've ever heard. So let's discuss some interesting sea creatures Igor has taken a closer look at. He's looked at water mite from the Mediterranean Sea, hydrozoan jellyfish from the Sea of Japan, Lanik-like terabilid polyclate worms, and I'm definitely abusing these names, but this is my way of saying them, Mediterranean red sea stars, zebra pope pods from the Mediterranean, and so many more. So just a bunch of these amazing animals he's taken a really close look at with his microscope. So let's start off with the hydrozoan jellyfish. They're related to jellyfish and corals. How can a jellyfish be related to corals? Well, they all belong to the type of the animals that are called cnidarians. They have a very special organization of their body. They have this very specific type of asymmetry. And um, they don't have one of the major germ layers during their development that is called mesoderm. Although there are different speculations that some jellyfish do have it. They're all related throughout the evolution. So they exist like a single branch on the tree of life. Although they can be quite different, they are interrelated. And um, many of these animals, many of cnidarians, they have amazing life cycle. When the jellyfish, also called medusa, produces the eggs and the sperm. And after they meet, they create a tiny little planula larva that settles down and gives rise to a polyp. So and the polyp looks like a, somewhat like a jellyfish, but attached to the seafloor. And that polyp can actually live there and feed there for a long time. And it will bud off new jellyfishes. So these animals, specifically hydrozone jellyfishes, they are only a part of a life cycle. And scientists, even like 50 years ago or so, they had a big problem, for example, understanding how does the jellyfish stage corresponds to a polyp stage, because people were going to expeditions, uh, the professional biologists were collecting polyps from different parts of the seafloor, from stones, from algae, and so on. And then they were collecting the jellyfish stage just with the plankton net, for example. And then they were looking at one, and then they were looking at another, and they didn't know which one gives rise to another, so which one belongs to each species. It was a total mess. And now the situation is changing because we can isolate the DNA, the genetic information from, for example, from polyp, and we can do the same for the jellyfish, and then we can match them. That provided us with, with a new way of solving this hubris situation that was about the systematics of the polyps and jellyfish. So they really do alternate. 
What is also interesting that some jellyfish, they lose the polyp stage, so they don't need the polyp anymore. They learn the tricks of life, let's say, and they can propagate without producing a polyp. And one of those jellyfish is called Turritopsis, is called uh, immortal jellyfish, for example, because researchers assume that it can live basically forever until it is consumed by another organism via predation. So some of these life forms can be really old. And of course, from the evolutionary point of view, they are extraordinarily ancient. So these jellyfish, they're part of this stage of life. But what I know you said, there's also immortal jellyfish. So I've heard of those. How is an overpopulation a problem if they're immortal? Is it just because they're eaten by a lot of animals and they're vulnerable? Yes, thanks. It's a great question. Actually, the overpopulation problem is typically solved not via the longevity of life and controlling the, the lifespan. It's often solved by the food chain. So everything is a part of a food chain in nature. And even though some organisms, they can live for a very long time and some probably can theoretically live forever, what is happening is that they get eaten by someone and that's how they end up their life. So that's probably why some jellyfish like Turritopsis, they can be in principle immortal, what researchers suspect, but in practical life, they never get immortal because of a very fast you know, energy transfer in the ocean via the food chain. So immortality is not a problem for an ocean. So nobody can be immortal for long enough. So going back to the hydrozoan jellyfish, how does it look just for listeners that would want a picture in their head? I know you post on your Instagram. What is your Instagram just so uh, people could check it out? Yes, my Instagram is called the story of a biologist. Yes, with this lower dash. Or you can just uh, Google my name, Igor Adameko, and uh, you can use one of the keywords like marine biology and you will get it. So it's really easy to find. And when it comes to how they look like, most of hydrozone jellyfish, they're rather small. So they're not that large and colorful like siphozone jellyfish, like classical jellyfish that you know. Like when you come, for example, to any public aquarium, they often have some jellyfish on exposure and they're pulsating beautifully going here and there. They're highlighted by this dynamic lighting and everything looks beautiful. No, those are not hydrozone jellyfish. Hydrozones, they can be like around one centimeter, five millimeter small. They have this semi-transparent, a totally extraterrestrial look with very bright gonads inside, like, you know, like a sort of cluster that resembles the brain inside of a, being packed inside of the tiny transparent sac. And um, yes, they pulsate in a very beautiful way. You can just go to my Instagram and see some of those. They also come in different flavors. So there is a big diversity. Of and I know when you think of the common jellyfish, you just think, you know, uh, pretty big. I mean, not one centimeter. That's really tiny. So I don't know. I can't even imagine the jellyfish that small, but it exists, I guess. Yeah. Uh, so Lannis-like cherubilid polycate worms. You need to repronounce that for me because I don't know how to say that. But I'm curious on where these live and how they're similar to worms on land because they have the word worms in them. So they must be similar in some way or look like worms in some way. Yes. I guess uh, worm is, is sort of a generalized life form. There are many types of worms created by evolution, different groups of worms. And uh, I think worms are very popular in nature, on land and in the sea. Some worms, they belong to a group that is called polychid worms because they have uh, so-called hete. Hete kind of like protrusions, like hairs that stick out of their limbs. They have limbs all around the body. And from the tips of the limbs, this hata, they sort of like, they come out and they use them for swimming, for crawling. 
for everything. The Rebelid polychids, these are very special polychids that resemble a hydra. So they have lots of tentacles growing on their head segment. And these tentacles, they can contract, they can go around. And typically, they, these terabellid polychids, they live in the tubes. So they make the tubes to hide their body. So they hide very nicely somewhere in the ocean floor. And only the head part sticks out with this bunch of tentacles. And tentacles spread out and cover large territory around the worm and help it to collect food particles and bring them to the mouth. So basically, the worm sits in a safety within some home and the tentacles do the job. So does this worm ever move if it's sitting, just collecting food with its tentacles? Yeah, they can move, actually. If they feel the danger, they can leave the tube and they can move very actively. They can move around like proper worms. Yeah, and when people ask me like uh, how things are related in terms of evolution, how the terabellid polychids are related to worms that we find on land, well, everything is related, right? We are the tree of life. We are all connected by evolution. All these multiple life forms beautiful and from small to large, very different. And um, all the kids, they belong to a group of worms, to the larger group of worms that are called annelids. And the earthworms, for example, they belong to the same group. So they're sort of close relatives if we compare worms and humans, for example. Yes, or something like that, or humans and insects. So earthworms, the groundworms, they are closer to terribleed polychids, to any polychids, actually, because they are in the same annelid. Wow. So how big are these worms? Are these like as small as those jellyfish, like one centimeter? They can be of a very different size. Uh, they can be starting from one millimeter to few centimeters. It's quite rare that uh, when they're big. What is quite interesting, one of my friends traveled to the Antarctic Sea, and I was curious about like how the life looks like under the ice. And uh, most often when you read the, about the life under the ice, people talk about whales and uh, seals and large animals that are easy to spot. But I'm interested in small things that most of the people have no idea about. And um, this colleague of mine, he said that surprisingly to him, everything was super large in these cold seas. Actually, the, the animals could acquire much larger size. For example, there are some Nimertean worms, the different group of worms, that, that could stretch several meters up to 10 meters and they could can be like, you know, as thick when they contract as my arm, for example. And of course, when this picture terrifies me in a good way. So I would love to see that those worms. And I was super jealous when I heard it because we don't find this sort of large creatures in the temperate and the tropical seas. So everything you look at, is it all uh, pretty small? Because you use microscopes, so... I know you're not looking at whales, but do you ever see things that are, you know, an average size or most of the things are pretty small? Like as you described, the jellyfish, one centimeter, you know, the um, worms. I'm interested in different things, of course. So uh, sometimes I collect and uh, film animals of regular size, like few centimeters, for example, one centimeter. But most of the things I'm interested in, they are really small. And I really like it because I think... We are not really aware of tiny little things, and there are myriads of them, and they're extraordinarily important to the life on our planet. So we need to learn more about things that are small, and uh, studying them probably will help us to save the planet better, because we will understand who changes in a better way, how the energy is transferred, how evolution is happening, everything like that. So I want to help people to see things that are invisible to the naked eye or inaccessible to regular people who don't do these expeditions or dive with special equipment. 
I want to bring up this sort of level of research. People who watch my Instagram and read my posts, for example, I'm convinced that one of the major roles of science is to create tools and instruments and opportunities for people to see sort of the hidden layers of nature, right? You can go to the forest and you can see the trees and birds with your own eyes, but you cannot see the cells. You cannot see the photosynthesis, for example. You cannot see how the trees, they process the energy of the sun and convert it into carbohydrates and oxygen, for example. You need some specific tools that researchers create. You need to see through their eyes and, and it adds to your sort of picture of the world, how the clockwork of the universe is operating at the, at the micro level, at the micro scale. So I think a very important role of science is to expose, to make things visible, those things that are invisible. Yeah. And that's why, I mean, everyone is shocked over things you post on your page. And when people see things that are just so small and odd, you know, we don't hear about sea worms very often and jellyfish the size of my thumb. So we think of jellyfish that are larger and whales when we think of the water. So this is why I really like this episode, because talking about the mysteries of life and, you know, the sea, it's really interesting. Moving on to the next one, we have Mediterranean red sea stars. I can say this name. These are vivid red to red-orange colors, and there are usually five arms that are connected to the central disk of each sea star. How are Mediterranean uh, red sea stars different from the sea stars that live in our oceans and seas? Well, they're all interrelated. Of course, uh, the diversity of sea stars is huge, and um, even in the Mediterranean Sea, which is pretty uh, sort of isolated and inland, there are many of I like those like bright red Mediterranean sea stars for their color. And once I've been asked by, uh, by one person on my Instagram, why do they have this bright color? Because it looks a bit counterintuitive. They stand out from the background so much any predator can come and, and fetch them. Like, are they venomous or like, how do they protect themselves? And my answer was that quite surprisingly, the red color is, is a very good color actually to hide in the ocean. Because, well, probably you've all been swimming in the ocean or sea and you know that the water looks really bluish. And when you open your eyes underwater or you, when you scuba dive, for example, like at the depth of 10 meters, everything is pretty much blue. Because the red part of the spectrum coming from our sun is cut off by the water very efficiently. But the blue light penetrates the water very deep. So if you have something red that lives at the depth of like 20, 30 meters, it literally turns into black. Maybe you've seen actually the footage from these autonomic submersibles that are quite popular over the internet. And when they record from the area, from the dark zone of the ocean, where there is no light penetrating to that part at all, many of these animals, they have very bright colors. They are super bright, beautiful shrimps flying around, literally around the camera, around the submersible machine. And there are giant jellyfish that are also, and they have these beautiful red parts. They have all this red to orange coloration, and they're, they're really bright. The question is like, why do they need all these colors? Because they live in a place where there is no light, so nobody can see their colors, right? So that was puzzling in the beginning. And they have these colors because they're very good to hide bioluminescence, because at these depths, red means black. It's some sort of pigment that would basically consume and shade any light. And many of these animals, they feed on the animals that can produce the light. And light is a very important signal in the dark zone of the ocean. So if you have the light somewhere, it means some life is going on in these locations, which means the predators will come and will try to see what is flying around and if they can eat something. 
but the animals in the sea, they still need to use the light because they want to mate, they want to recognize each other. And how do you see each other without light? They need to make their own light. And these animals that are brightly colored, like shrimps and jellyfish and so on, they're so brightly colored in red and orange, actually, because when they eat these bioluminescent smaller organisms, they don't want them to shine in their stomachs, highlighting them, highlighting those animals that ate oh. well, the, the bigger predator doesn't come and eat those guys. And that's uh, pretty much one of the major explanations why sometimes actually all these animals living in complete darkness, they have interesting colors. That's really interesting. What about water mite? I don't know where to start. I mean, they looked really interesting on your page. What are they and what do they do? Yes. So water mites are mites that live in our oceans. Actually, typically people don't expect to find mites living in oceans. They expect to find mites living on land, on some plants. So many people who grow plants indoors, they have this issue with mites conquering their plants and destroying them. And then when someone shows the mites living like on the surface of a coral or on the surface of some algae, that sometimes is surprising. They can be super fast. They can be brightly colored. They look beautiful. And most of them are super tiny. So they are like half of the millimeter or one third of the millimeter. So it, it is extraordinarily hard to spot them with the naked eye. But when I use microscopes, I find them actually in my plankton samples or when I get something from the ocean floor to look what lives there. I think it's just surprising to find something familiar that we know from the land so deep uh, in the ocean and still looking pretty much the same. Do they have any sort of important function in the sea or are they just sort of there? Yeah, everything is connected in these biological systems, in the sea and on land. They add to the stability of the ecosystem for sure. They play some role there and they drive the further evolution of the ecosystem. It's very hard to answer what is the absolutely specific function, but um, obviously biologists, they can come up with the number of things they eat or they serve as a food in this food chain. But overall, the question about the function is always connected to the stability of the ecosystem and uh, the energy transfer. That we need to kind of to have a bigger picture, but we need to put the object we try to question in a sort of in a bigger frame and see what are the connections to other animals and see the importance of this object through this connection. How are water mites similar to other organisms in the sea? Do they have like, for instance, they're really small, I mean, tiny. So do they have like, how do they breathe? Do they have gills like fish? They're so small, they do the gas exchange just via their body surface. So most of the tiny little organisms, they don't require specific organs for breathing because if they're less than a millimeter, most of the metabolite and gas exchange can be done just via their body surface. Still, many of them, they have the specific organs that help them to exchange metabolites because the metabolites are a little bit more problematic as compared to soluble gases like oxygen or CO2. But yeah, the body surface plays the leading role. Interested. I know a lot of the organisms on your page that you take a close look at, uh, they're from the Mediterranean Sea. So is the Mediterranean Sea just, are there more organisms living there in that sea? Is that why uh, it seems like there are more things you take pictures of from there? I think it's a bit of a wrong impression. Recently, I've been posting a lot of animals from Mediterranean Sea. Yeah. But if you look through the entire thing, which is huge and probably nobody can do that. Yes, most of the organisms I post are coming from the Atlantic Ocean, and the majority of them are they were filmed in the North Sea, next to the Norway coast. So Norwegian fjords, they're beautiful, 
and I have a chance to get close to Norwegian fjords at the place where the Swedish and Norwegian borders meet. And I really love sampling there. It's very rich life. And when I come in different seasons, this life is also changing from season to season. So the sea is never the same. You come one or two weeks later and you notice a change in the composition of plankton, for example. So it's like seasons on land, there are seasons in the sea. That's amazing. So lastly, we have zebra copepods. I don't know if I'm saying that right, but they are also from the Mediterranean Sea. I found these interesting because, I mean, they're zebra copepods. So again, does the word zebra mean anything? Is it, do they have stripes on them? Uh, uh, what role well, do they serve? Yeah, this is not a scientific name, of course. This is just, you know, how I describe their appearance. It's just easy to communicate. Yes, they're absolutely beautiful because they have uh, pink stripes. So they, they're like wearing the costume with, uh, with pink and white stripes. And this shade of pink is amazingly bright. It's so beautiful shade of pink. I really love that color. It's something between pink and ruby and yeah, shining super bright. Actually, copy pots, they're known for producing different colors and uh, different displays. There are copy pots that are called subferrite copy pots and they are males. They can do very specific iridescence so they can reflect the wavelengths of light in a specific pattern like they shine like absolutely like cool objects and they shine instantly so you see absolutely transparent water you can swim next to them and instantly they just emerge in front of you and they look like gemstones and then they disappear again there is a magic these, color these copper pods can become invisible they actually they're absolutely transparent their body is fully wow. transparent actually many marine animals are transparent but being transparent, they can still generate the color because color is not always coming from a pigment. Probably you heard a story about the structural coloration and structural coloration has a number of famous examples. For example, the peacock feathers, they have all these beautiful colors. They have all this pattern because of the structural coloration, not because of the pigment that changes the chemical structure to produce the green part or the orange part and so on. What is happening there in case of structural coloration, the surface of an animal or the surface of a feather has very tiny little spots, uh, different things that are spaced out. Basically, similarly to the wavelength, they will reflect or scatter. You can basically scratch a specific pattern. You cannot do it. You need a specific micro machine. And that pattern will specifically reflect the predominant part of a spectrum, like either green or blue and so on. And uh, the animals in the sea and on the land Instead of producing the chemistry to produce the pigment, right, to get the color, they make this structural coloration. They just pattern their surface with tiny little grids that are spaced out according to the wavelength of light they are going to reflect. And this color comes up. And um, for instance, many transparent water animals, when they turn in a specific way, they can sort of generate that iridescence. They, they reflect the light using their surface. When they're perpendicular to you, like this, for example, you don't see them because they're fully transparent. But once they turn a little bit, they start to reflect the light on their surface. So they start to work like a small mirror that can generate some additional color. And it looks amazing. And that's really funny that you said that because on the podcast Instagram, chit-chatting and questioning the world, dot podcast, I do Monday's Mad Facts. So our team posts crazy different facts every Monday just to keep everyone curious. And one of those mad facts was exactly what you just said, the peacock feathers, how it's not the pigment that makes them colored, but it's the structure of their feathers that reflects a certain wavelength. So that's really interesting. 
going back to the copepods, I would love to know how they look because it's sort of hard to imagine. <laughs> yes, if you would ask me if I can describe how the octopus looks like, I would also have a problem to describe it, I guess, in words. But yes, copepods, they are tiny sort of sea laces, tiny little kind of bugs, typically smaller than a millimeter or around that size. They have quite many like appendages. They can be similar sometimes to super tiny little shrimp, but otherwise I don't know how to describe them. I guess you have to just visit my Instagram and see them with your own eyes. That's what I would suggest to do. Yes, and since they are beautifully colored, you will definitely enjoy that. Yeah, they're truly uh, beautiful. So moving on, Igor has an amazing story to share, one that'll blow your mind. When one has this hobby of traveling the world to look at sea life through a microscope for many years, they are familiar with everything. It's rare you see an organism you don't understand. And when it does happen, you talk to your colleagues and 99% of the time, a colleague will know the organism. There was one special case in which even Igor couldn't answer it, uh, nor could his colleagues. So it all started with Instagram and a picture of a fascinating organism Igor had never seen before. Yup, this is the half snake organism that you've been waiting for that I mentioned in the beginning of the episode. So Igor, I'll let you take it from here. Yes, well, that was quite a story and it's coming to an end right now. But indeed, uh, this story started with Instagram. Typically, one cannot expect that some new science or new discovery will happen just with Instagram by seeing some image on Instagram, but it happened exactly the same way. That's why I think social networks, the projects like iNaturalist, they can be extremely useful to science. So this part of citizen science can really help professional researchers to make new discoveries. What was happening that time is that I, I just was scrolling through my feed and then I spotted some animal that I didn't recognize. And it doesn't happen often. So I got curious and I decided, okay, I go and read description. Oh, that was posted by my Japanese colleague whose name is Ryo Minimizu. Ryo is very famous underwater photographer. He publishes amazing books and he runs fantastic Instagram page and his website. So you can just Google Ryo, R-Y-O Minimizu, and you will find a lot of uh, things about him. He's absolutely top-notch professional in biodiversity and he lives in Japan. So I knew that Rio would know what, what he's posting. So I went there and what I saw is that Rio is asking, okay, guys, do you know what this animal is? I'm thrilled and surprised because I see something that I do not understand. And of course, it's not only me, but many other professional biologists following him. Uh, and many people like, there were like probably a couple of hundreds of comments. They came and they made different suggestions and they had... Uh, different arguments and they were contradicting each other. So it was a big discussion. And at the end of the discussion, it was clear that nobody had the correct idea about uh, what this animal is. And I was also participating in this discussion. After a while, I emailed Rio asking him, so if that became clear what the animal is, and said like, no. And I asked him if he has a sample. He said that, yes, I have one sample, just one sample. Uh, that I collected two years ago and I still store it in formalin. And I asked, so nobody asked for the sample to study? And he said, no. And I told him that, well, we would be very happy to study it in my laboratory. So if you will send this sample over to us, then we will start running the investigation. And um, he sent the sample to us. So the sample came, we put it under the microscope, we started doing analysis of its genome. And it turned out that animal is even more enigmatic as compared to what we thought at the first look. Typically, when you study something, 
when something is unclear, with more experiments and observations, it become more clear. So with time, smart people do a good job and they sort of they understand what's going on. It was exactly the opposite with this animal. So when I showed all our data to one of our colleagues, who is a very big superstar in the field of uh, marine biodiversity, he looked at the data and he said, the more I look at the data, the less I understand about that animal. And I will tell you a little bit more about how the animal looks. So it looks like a um, tiny five millimeter sized, like fluffy ball. And it's fluffy because it, it's made of sort of like moving snakes, tiny little moving snakes with two like eyes that are all interconnected by their tails in the very center. And also in addition to this kind of connection in the center, there are tiny little orange things that emanate from the center that make some sort of kind of a hemisphere from below. And that whole structure can move in the water. It can swim quite directionally. Although it's tiny, it swims quite fast and very intense. But we are the movement of the snakes. By moving, they propel the whole colony around. And it took us more than a year, like 1.5 years, to start getting the right impression about what is that. And it turned out that this animal represents a symbiosis of two groups of two different families of parasites, of parasitic flatworms. And this is extraordinary rare. This is the first case in nature when two parasitic uh, flatworms, they come into such symbiosis and they try to, uh, to imitate some lure. So the fish will consume it and will get infected by two different species of parasites. And now we are finishing our scientific manuscript on that. Uh, and the whole story started with Instagram two years ago. It's basically two organisms, part of one. So you have the, the snakes that are attached, a bunch of small snake heads. And what's the other organism that's part of this? Yes, it's another larva of uh, another family of flatworms. They make this sort of fluffy ball, the, the hemisphere from which the snakes oh. emanate, right? The snakes, they look like a crown of snakes. And this hemisphere looks like someone's head. So it's like a tiny little head with snakes instead of hairs, and it sort of flies around the water. Is there a name to this organism? Yes, it's a symbiotic organism. And this flatworm larvae that give rise to this whole conglomerate, they're called cercaria. So cercaria represent a stage in the life of parasitic flatworms. They typically quite active and they search uh, for the new host to infest. And in this specific case, two completely different families of cercaria flatworms, they come together uh, and they make this sort of like uh, composite colony that moves as a single unit. And we never, like a scientist, I never seen anything like that. And uh, all my friends who work in parasitology field, they also believe this is pretty unique. We can get sick with diseases, viruses infect us. That's exactly what it is, but in the sea. So it's just like a virus, living virus. It's like a parasitic worm. It's like a helmet yeah. that will infect the fish, right? Yeah, in the wild, either if we talk about terrestrial like assistance or oceanic ecosystems, the parasites are everywhere. So it's very hard to find the animal without parasites. So parasitism is the natural part of the world, of the ecosystem. And very often we have parasites that have their own parasites and their own parasites, they have also their own parasites. So it can be extraordinarily mind-boggling. And the life cycles of parasites, they can be complex and very interesting because depending on the stage in the life cycle, they can have a different host. So they can uh, parasite on different animals, but it's still the same organism that will sort of change throughout the life cycle. For example, in the beginning, it can parasite in a mollusk, but then it will leave the body of the mollusk after destroying it, and then it will 
find the fish and then it will infest the fish and will live in the fish. And it will look completely different from how it looked when it was living in a mollusk. It's uh, really wow. a cool concept, right? That one or yeah. can generate different life forms that sort of alternate within the life cycle. Something similar to what I was talking about in the beginning about the polyp and the jellyfish about the Medusa stage. So they alternate, right? In Cnadarians. But here, the stages of the parasite, they alternate and they use different hosts and they can be adapted to living inside of someone's body or to swimming freely and hunting for the new host, searching for the new host. Sometimes it's hard to recognize that it's still the same organism, by the way, how it looks and how it's built. Yeah, it's really creepy. I mean, even to think about that, like snake heads on this tiny thing. How small is this exactly? The whole thing is like five millimeters in diameter. So it's, it is pretty wow. small. Yes. Yeah. And it's definitely not harmful to humans. It's probably harmful to some mollusks and fish. So we can study it with, only with interest and love. <laughs> So make sure to check out this podcast's Instagram as well. It's chitchattingtheworld.podcast, C-H-I-T-C-H-A-T-T-I-N-G-T-H-E-W-O-R-L-D.P-O-D-C-A-S-T, chitchattingtheworld.podcast. Uh, if you want to also see a picture of this unique organism, Igor has a bunch on his page, but I'll definitely be posting a picture of this organism because I know everyone is interested, no matter who you are. It's crazy. If you're listening to this now, the post is up, so you can take a look. And Igor, I know much of your research currently consists of studying this organism, this captivating organism, but is there some other research you're doing at the moment? What are you up to? Well, in my sort of professional part of life, we study uh, how the nervous system is uh, becoming comes into shape during embryonic development, how humans get the brain and other components of the nervous system that allow us to feel, for example, touch, pain, different sensations. Uh, but when it comes to something more related to marine biology, we are trying to understand um, the origin, the, how for the first time the neurons uh, appeared, right? Uh, the neurons, the, the nerve cells, they are absolutely unique. They can generate these electric currents, the electric potentials, and they can transmit and process the information, right? So we can think and we can listen to each other because of the neurons. But the question is, what was the first neuron or proteneuron? And in which animal we can find these very early neurons or proteneurons? And of course, for this, we need to go back to the sea because the most ancient life lives in the sea. These groups of animals that are sort of like, that separated first on the evolutionary, uh, this phylogenetic tree. And we are still working with some cnidarians, some polyps, together with uh, our colleagues, trying to understand this very primeval neurons or neuron-like cells, like trying to get an idea from which other most simple cell types they emerged for the first time and how did they come up with all the molecular toolkit that allows them to process information and generate these electric currents. So we are trying to understand the evolution of nerve cells. And uh, that's really interesting because, you know, obviously that has to do with your um, main occupation. And you can also pursue that in traveling the world and looking at different organisms. So, you know, you're productive in both your hobby and your main job. So that should be great. And I spoke two episodes ago, I spoke to Edward Boyden. So he's the pioneer of octogenetics. And we talked a lot about nerve cells and electricity and how you know, we're able to change the way that signals are received through optogenetics, so all that stuff. So obviously, if you guys like that stuff, you should listen to that episode. 
That's called manipulating our brain. But I think it's a really interesting thing to study and something that I know scientists don't know so much about, just like uh, the mysteries of the water. What's down the road for you? So I know we just talked about that, but regarding like your passion for this hobby, do you think that you'll continue doing this long term? Yes, I'm planning to continue this long term and uh, I would like to extend it. For instance, I would like to use some submersibles. For instance, we will start some collaborations with institutions that have submersibles deployed on their ships. We will run some joint expeditions with them and collect the plankton and other organisms and study them on board of the ships. And I think that would be absolutely thrilling because in that case, we can collect from really deep regions of the ocean. So when I'm coming somewhere and I'm on my own, I cannot collect things from deep regions because typically I never get the professional ship for expedition and I can go to, for example, like 1,000 meter depth. But uh, with the help of these professional equipment, we will be able to do that. And I hope I will be posting a lot about the life that I find that deep. Um, and what advice do you have to any aspiring scientists who might want to travel the world to look at sea creatures through this microscopic lens like you do? I think it's a pretty accessible hobby. You don't have to do it like me. I do it already for many years and I already have a professional training as a biologist. So, but any person, even without the background in biology, can start with some startup package, which would be like a simple microscope that would cost maybe like $200. And uh, the iPhone, for instance, or like any other phone that you can attach with a simple plastic adapter to the eyepiece of the microscope and start recording what you see. And eventually you will be getting better and better in the microscopy, finding different animals. And you will learn a lot on this way. And it can make you happy independently of whether you are going to have a career in biology or not. It's a super cool hobby because you never know what you will find in different locations. Uh, you can go to the ponds, you can go to the rivers, you can go to collect the moss uh, in a swamp, you can collect soil in your garden and put it under the microscope. And you will see lots of interesting things, trust me. So you just need a small, simple microscope for the beginning and your mobile phone with a camera that you can basically connect to this microscope. That's how everything starts. And from that point, you can take on even more interesting future, I think. Yeah, maybe I'll just buy a microscope and start doing it. That's really interesting. Yeah, I really do aspire to do something maybe similar. You know, I think it's fascinating, all the sea creatures that you get to see. It's truly eye-opening. Eager, I appreciate your time on the Chit-Chatting and Questioning the World podcast. And it was fascinating to have discussed the mysteries of the water with you, someone who travels the world to look at organisms closely. And thank you for satisfying the curiosity of our listeners by being a guest on this episode. I was very happy. And thanks so much for inviting me. I love doing these things, uh, talking about uh, my hobby, about sea animals, spreading the word and... Uh, showing uh, the animals to other people. I don't do it only for myself. I also do it for many other people who can enjoy that. I think it becomes a very important part of my life. So I'm very grateful for this invitation. Thank yes, you. of course. You know, I thank you. It was an honor. And to talk about the depth of the sea uh, with someone that does it so often and gets to look at them so closely, it's amazing because we can really get to learn things that we wouldn't have learned. So if you want to, again, see a picture of this half-snaked organism, I can't even pronounce the name, so I'm not going to try. But you should follow chitchattingtheworld.podcast on Instagram. We have other episodes posted every month. And uh, you'll also love Eager's Instagram page, the story of a biologist, underscores between each word. But if you just look that up, you'll definitely get to his page. 
So until next month's episode, thank you. Thank you. Thank you.